Today's episode is brought to you by Medify, a self-awareness app that will help you be your best self. The practice of being seen is about understanding who you really are and daring to share your truth with the world. This is a conversation with and for seekers, creators, and holders of transformation. We believe that stories shape relationships and relationships shape stories. This is Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. And this is Marisa Gowdy, writer and storytelling coach for Healers. And this is The Practice of Being Seen. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Before we begin today, a quick message for the therapists in our listening community. This August, between the 13th and 16th, we are gathering together at the legendary Menla Mountain Retreat in New York's Catskill Mountains. Together, we're going to be embarking upon a retreat we call Revision. This is the place to explore your stories and plot your future. Learn more at practiceofbeingseen.com events. Our guest today is Marsha Shandor. She is a storytelling coach. She's the organizer, host of, and story coach for True Stories Told Live, one of Toronto's biggest storytelling shows. She's coached hundreds of storytellers, drawing their personal stories out and taking them from a confused mess to compelling peace. She herself has told stories everywhere from the Toronto Storytelling Festival to a live audience of 3,000 people at Portland's World Domination Summit. As the founder of YesYesMarsha.com, she coaches creatives and entrepreneurs how to make an instant emotional connection with their dream clients through storytelling and effective and fun networking. She's been featured on Forbes, the BBC, Mashable, and The Muse. Marsha, we're so excited to have you here with us today. I'm so excited to be here. I never get to hang out with storytelling coaches. And I love relationship therapists. Relationship therapy was a game changer for me. So nice work, guys. Mm, We are so excited to sit down with you. And it's going to be fun to dive into the fact that my storytelling coach work is mostly on the page and you are all about standing up in front of people as Mm -hmm. I understand it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do some work that's on the page, but it's more like I'm teaching you how to tell stories better in general, right? Um, whether that's on the page or standing up. But yeah, the stuff Mm. I get really stoked about is the voice, verbal, out loud storytelling. We figured that out as soon as we met you. Yes. You have a presence, my dear, and it's fabulous. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you again for being with us. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, we are so excited to dive deep with you today. You know, there are so many pieces of just kind of what I have taken away from you that have kind of stuck with me. But I think the biggest one is just how you show up and how you make connection. Thanks. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, It's hard to walk away from meeting you and not leave with just this impression of who Marcia is and how she makes you feel. And I know that that's something that is also embedded into the work that you do. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I was about to say, like one of the things that I found being in the world of doing online coaching, you know, my clients are all over the world and I'm definitely like steeped in that world where there's a lot of coaches. People find me much funnier than any other demographic. And I think it's partly like having a British accent in a sea of North Americans. You just are funnier. I I live in Toronto and I briefly did improv comedy here and I'm okay at improv, but I got away with a lot by just like, if it was going badly, I just would go full British and I'd get some laughs. So it's partly that. But I think it's also 
also that there are a lot of people in this world who come from a corporate background. And when you're in corporate, you're really encouraged in a lot of places to squish your personality out. Whereas my background is that I was a radio DJ. So I was just a disembodied voice, which meant literally all I had was my personality. And, you know, and I had to put everything into it. And so I think often when people find me funny, whether it's on my website, my videos, or when we're doing interviews or talks or whatever, it's because they kind of can't believe that I wear my eccentricities on my sleeve as much as I do. And for me, that's just because that was the only way that I could make myself stand out when I was a disembodied voice. But so I say that, but then you're talking about in person and a lot of radio DJs aren't super socially skilled. <laughs> we are used to like basically sitting in a room alone talking to ourselves. <laughs> so I don't know where that fits in. Because it's permission to be both, you know, it's the both and of it all, right? And that seems to be the lesson we've learned again and again in this podcast. As soon as we start to draw any distinction of like, well, I'm this, but I'm also this. And that totally contradicts that. Oh, I'm a human being. Totally, awesome. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. Yes. You know, and one of the ways since we met you at Camp JLP last summer, one of the ways our relationship with you has continued on is that you have the greatest little Facebook thread that you do every Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. I yes. don't have it all together Tuesdays. Yes. And oftentimes my days are so busy, I don't even have time to join in. But just the fact that you put that energy out there to like, let's own our humanity. It's so, so spectacular. Can you tell me about that experience of, of what that's kind of created for you, even in your, yeah, kind of your so, personal Facebook world? You know what? I'll tell you the background of it, which is I sort of increasingly had this big like shift about a year ago. And it was this thing that all of my mentors, like Jonathan Fields and people I love, like Martha Beck, tell me is going to happen. And then it happened, which is when you get very, very, very clear on why you're doing what you're doing, everything changes. And, you know, if if you believe in this kind of thing, which I do, the universe just starts throwing stuff that you need in your way. And I always thought I was doing story coaching for some like great noble cause, like to, to help nonprofits or spread the word of activism. And actually I had this giant like light bulb moment a year ago where I was like, oh, it's not about that at all. It's about the fact that pretty much all of us walks around all day, every day, thinking that everybody else has their ish together and we're the only ones that don't. You know, everybody has a perfect relationship or a perfect family or a perfect job. And we're the ones that don't, and we're the ones who are failing. And, you know, and then we go on Facebook, which I love for so many reasons, but we often go on there wanting connection and it's kind of like eating candy or chocolate, you know, which definitely has its place. It's a small hit, but there's no substance. And sometimes that can compound the feeling because everybody's putting up their highlight reels. And so you go on there feeling a bit sad and a bit crummy about yourself. And it's all like, mm, my perfect relationship. Look at me and my kids. I don't have any kids. So I go on vacation all the time. And it compounds that feeling. And that feeling is shame. And what shame does is it cuts you off from everyone else. Whereas somebody stands up and tells a vulnerable story and you suddenly think, oh my gosh, you don't have your ish together either. Maybe it's okay that I don't. And maybe actually nobody does. So I'd kind of been thinking about that for a long time. I made a video about it. And then I was talking to a client of mine, this amazing client of mine, and I was telling her about how I'd been sitting in my kitchen a couple of days before and had been feeling like a total failure. And I had this moment where I thought, wow, I wonder how many people I know are feeling like this right now and would never have any, any idea that I would feel like this. And I told her this and she burst out laughing and said, but of course, Marsha, in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, but Marsha, you're not really the failure. I'm the failure. 
And I would burst out laughing because I was like, as I was telling you this story, Anne, I was thinking, of course, Anne won't really understand this because she's not a failure like I am. (laughs) And so I thought, okay, something has to be done. And so I started this thread and it's on my personal Facebook, but it's public. So anybody can join in. Like I have a few hundred followers and they all join in. And it's that every week, so it's called I Don't Have Altogether Tuesday. And every week you have to post one small thing that makes you feel like you don't have it all together. And I've started a thing now where I'm making people reply to that with one small thing where they feel like they do. But it's so great. And it makes me laugh every single week. And it makes me feel better about myself every single week. So for example, one of my friends, Gemma, posted, she was like, I was really sick. I knew I should get an early night. I stayed up till one in the morning watching TV. And literally a week later, I was really sick. I was like, I'm going to be in bed by seven. I'm going to get up tomorrow at six and be so productive. And then it's one in the morning and I'm still watching Netflix. And, you know, my heart went to feel shame. But then I was like, oh, Gemma did this. Like, I'm not the worst human alive because other people do this. It's okay. And I love it. And what I find the most moving actually isn't people who comment, but people who email me who never comment. But they email me and say, I look forward to this every week. Like, it makes me feel so much better. And, you know, the people who don't even, for themselves, for whatever reason, it's too vulnerable for them to actually write on it, that it still makes a difference to them. That's so moving to me. Mm. It has been so awesome to read those threads. And I have not been someone who's commented on them. I've often kind of sat back and just absorbed them and looked at what everybody else is writing. But then as we were getting ready for today's podcast, and we were like, oh, we haven't done this, and we haven't done this, and we haven't sent this to Marcia yet. Marisa just looked over my shoulder and she's like, it's okay. She'll understand. Remember, she's the woman who has the, I don't have my. (laughs) Totally. Totally. I'm not going to be like, you guys are so unprofessional. (laughs) No, it was so, it was such a relief just kind of having that be part of our morning here today. And it's a permission slip to everybody you're going to work with, potential clients, to colleagues, to, you know, the people where hopefully we'll meet you again and we'll cross paths and be like, oh. She's awesome and she's a shiny bright star and she's also a disaster just like us. <laughs> totally. And it's so interesting. I was just talking about this with my accountability partner. So we've been meeting every week for four years and both of us, like since we've started, are always so struck by the difference between perception and reality. You know, we both had periods of our business where we are earning nothing and people are emailing us being like, oh my gosh, congratulations, wild success. And we're like, really? Really, could you tell my bank balance, please? My cat um, is hungry. Yeah. And we kind of sort of talked about like, how do you strike that balance? Because obviously, especially as a coach, like there's a huge extent to which I'm selling brand Marsha as much as I'm selling anything else. And so, you know, I can't go on there and be like, oh, this month I've had no clients or whatever, because then people are like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't hire you either. Like you've got to strike that balance. But I also feel like we're all so desperate to put out this best version of ourselves, but we all love it so much when people don't do it. It's like Brene Brown says, when you meet someone, vulnerability is the first thing you look for in them and the last thing you want to show. And for me, that's why storytelling is so powerful because storytelling is a really low stakes way of being vulnerable because in storytelling, you always need to have emotional distance from the story to tell it. Your audience needs to feel safe, but you can talk about how back in the past when this story happened, you felt scared or you felt anxious or you felt whatever it was, you know, you can talk about your feelings. And so you're saying, look, I'm a well-rounded human, but it's also about something that happened a while ago. And so it's a really low stakes way of doing that. Mm -hmm. I love that influence there of it being 
low stakes because it happened a while ago. Mm-hmm. At the moment, I'm speaking to corporations about coming in and doing work with them. And one of the things that I'm saying to them is that in order to have innovation, you need to have a culture of vulnerability because to have innovation, you need to know that it's okay to try and fail. Otherwise, nobody will ever try anything new. But people who are in management positions or C-suite positions know that they need to be vulnerable, but it's incredibly hard for them to do that. And they think, well, how do I do that without people losing faith in me? Whereas if they can tell a story, and this doesn't have to be a big deal story about, you know, when my wife or husband left me or whatever. This can be like how you felt when you went to buy a cup of coffee in the morning and you like accidentally knocked it over or you said something stupid to the barista and you felt stupid. You know what I mean? It can be really tiny stories, but it's just about including that part about how did you feel? And that's the vulnerability. And that's, you know, that's what's important. And that's a low stakes way to do it. And yet that's such a difficult thing because so many people have trouble talking about how they feel because they don't even know how they feel. Mm, Totally, totally. And that's, you know, one of the things that I teach is like how to figure that out. But I feel like, and you know, nine times out of 10, when I say to someone, whenever I'm doing story coaching, I don't know if you find the same, Marisa, but I'm just like, how did you feel? How did you feel? How did you feel? And people are like, here is my opinion on someone else. And you're like, but how did you feel? And they're like, here is a statement of fact about a building. Um, (laughs) But people can definitely learn how to do that. And I've worked with, I have one client in particular who um, is always like responding to my weekly email if I ever talk about emotions and is like, oh, this is me, isn't it? Where he just doesn't feel things that strongly, I don't think, but he's starting Mm. to learn how to access it and how to recognize it and what it looks like. So for example, one of the exercises that I do. So when you're talking about your emotions in storytelling, there's three different ways to do it. One is internal monologue, which tends to be our go-to. And sometimes it's really important to drive the story forward, you know, to say, why did I wear red shoes? I know he hates them. He's going to go nuts when he sees these. The second one is name the emotion. I was angry. I was sad. I was happy. We are very bad at that as North Americans and Brits. But the Mm. third one is physically describe what's happening in your body as you have that emotion. There is always a physical feeling in your body when you have an emotion. And I have a little meditation I do with people where I take them through that. And then one of the things that I get them to do, like the only kind of bit of homework really that I give my clients is when you're doing something that you do a lot of times, so maybe going to the washroom, just ask yourself, how do I feel? And where do I feel that in my body? And then okay, you just I'm going to pause you there because I love this. Mm. And because in our community for therapists, we're just having this whole conversation right now around how to help our clients feel their feelings. And mm. so much of what you're talking about applies yes. directly to conversation that we're having there. And so I would love you to walk us through this, like to drop into it with us. And totally. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And can I just say what's so interesting about that is the reason I learned how to do this is because of the kind of therapy that I'm in. My therapist does sensory motor therapy, which is all about body memory in particular, and that we tend to think, you know, that our thoughts drive our emotions and our emotions drive our physicality, but actually so often it's the other way around. And especially when it's stuff, you know, from when we were kids that we don't necessarily remember because we didn't have language or because it just didn't seem important to hold that memory. But in the same way as, you know, if you've just been burgled the next day, a door slams, you'll go <gasps> and your heart will start pounding. It's because your body thinks I'm being burgled again. Right. Even this if your is, rational brain This is a very it. like trauma sensitive approach. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people would struggle with perhaps relating to traumas, although many of us have had some kind of adverse event in our life, yeah. especially yeah. in our childhoods that stay with us. And we know that our body holds these memories. Mm -hmm. And so this is the work of kind of bringing it back to the senses and really kind of getting back in touch with our bodies. I'm loving how this is showing up in storytelling. Yes, totally. It's so amazing. <laughs> so I'm always telling my therapist, I'm, I'm making people better storytellers and happier people. So I'll run you through the exercise. But another thing that's interesting about it is this is the central tenet of Buddhism. Feel the feelings, let go of the story. Mm. Um, and so it also makes you a happier person. Okay, so we'll do this exercise. So if you can... Can I sit back and have a cup of tea while we're talking about this? Actually, what I would like you to do is to put your feet flat on the floor and sit oh. up comfortably with your hands in your lap or on the table, whatever's comfortable okay. for you. And if you're listening to the podcast, if you can do this as well, this would be amazing. But actually, you know what? We were going to make a secret webpage for the podcast and I have this recorded and so I can put this exercise up in case someone wants to use it again. It'll be on your show notes, won't it? Yeah. So if you can sit up and if it feels good to you, sit up comfortably, close your eyes if it feels good to you and just take some deep breaths just at the depth that feels comfortable and try to gently rest your attention on your breath, on the way that it feels going in and out of your body. Your brain is going to keep thinking thoughts. That's cool. That's what it's built for. But just keep trying to gently bring your attention back to your breath. And then I want you to think about a time in the next year, and I'm not going to get you to share this. So this is private just for you. Think about a time in the next year that is really, really exciting. So whatever this means for you, it could be you win the award or your book comes out or something to do with romance or something to do with your family or where you live or where you've traveled, but some really exciting thing. And I want you to think about the specific situation. And I want you to imagine yourself there, but with your eyes closed. So imagine yourself in that place, in that exciting place. Physically, what do you feel under your bum or under your feet or under your back if you're lying down? What can you hear? What does the quality of air feel like on your skin? Are there any smells? Are there any tastes associated with it? And then keep your eyes closed now, but imagine opening your eyes. What can you see around you? Who's there? What are they saying? And then I just want you to put your attention on how you feel on that excitement. And I want you to ramp it up as much as you can. And now start getting curious about where in your body you feel that excitement. Is it in your stomach? Is it in your chest? Is it in your head? Is it expanding or contracting? Is it solid or liquid or goop? Is there anything you could compare it to? Is it like butterflies or fireworks or honey? Does it have a color? Does it have a temperature? Again, really think about just the physical aspect. None of your thoughts about it, none of your feelings about it, just physically how does that excitement feel? And what I love about this is it's different for everyone. And actually what I'll get you to do is I'll get you guys to tell me, let's start with Marissa. Tell me some of the physicalities that you feel of that excitement. Where is it for you and what's it like? Mm. It's like a cone of energy that goes from my chest up around, swirling around my head. 
Mm. Sort of like being inside a fishbowl, I guess, because mm-hmm. it was very turquoisey and blue, and then these little like goldfish shots of orange. Mm-hmm. Okay, both keep your eyes closed if you can for this. That's amazing. And then what about you, Rebecca? Mm-hmm. So for me, it was a little different. I felt it in my chest at first, and then it was kind of like expanding down through all of my limbs and rooting in. And what was the quality of that feeling? Uh, it was um, it was like sparkly. I don't know how to describe mm-hmm. it exactly, but it was sparkly. That's perfect. Yeah. Okay, put your attention back on your breath for a couple of breaths. And then... When you feel ready, flutter your eyes open. (laughs) And so with that, in terms of storytelling, you can say, I walked into the room and I thought, oh, I'm so glad this is happening. Or you can say, I walked into the room and I felt really excited. Or you can say, I walked into the room and I felt like I had this cone of energy from my chest up, like being in a fish hole, you know, swimming around, fishbowl swimming around my head, like little shots of orange. Or you can say, I walked into the room and it felt like my chest was expanding and there was this sparkly feeling going right through my limbs and rooting down. And it's so much more powerful. And the reason it's more powerful is because of our mirror neurons. So our mirror neurons are the ways that we socialize. And it's kind of, you know, how we empathize with people. It's why when we're around people who are very grumpy, we feel grumpy. When we're around people who are very happy, we feel happy. And so I always think with storytelling, what you're trying to do most of all, and the brain science backs this up, is you're trying to elicit a Freaky Friday style body swap between the person listening to or reading the story and you in that moment. And by I'm sorry, physically- I'm just, I'm getting hung up on the Freaky Friday body swap. I love it. Yeah. That's a scientific term. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> um, and so when you make them feel the way that you felt in your body, you're immediately putting them into your body. You know, if I say I walked into the room and my stomach was in a tight knot, their stomachs will feel like they're in a tight knot. Okay. So um, I'm also bringing this now into relationships because this is where the relationship happens in storytelling. Just like if I walk into the room with my husband and I tell him like, okay, I'm feeling really tense right now. Something's not feeling good to me. We sit down and have a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, totally. but it's the same thing that when you're telling a story, whether you're on stage or on the page, it's the same thing. That's where the conversation and the relationship really begins. And that's where the connection happens. And people ask me, you know, what's the biggest mistake people make in storytelling? They often think it's putting in too much detail. It's not putting in the right kind of detail. And specifically, it's not talking about how you feel because emotions Mm. are how you find that connection into the story. You know, I had a storyteller at my show a couple of months ago tell a story about going and protesting at Standing Rock. And I'm pretty sure no one else in the room had been to protest at Standing Rock. I'm pretty sure most people in the room hadn't ever been to the kind of protest where you might get maced or arrested. But all of us had been in a situation where we're supposed to be brave and we feel terrified. All of us had been in a situation where we're supposed to be brave, we do something cowardly, and then we feel shame. Or another client of mine, Elena Lipson, who has given me permission to tell her story, we were working on a talk she was doing about saying yes to yourself and not to other people. And to illustrate it, she told a story about when she gave birth to her son. And all the way through, she's doing not what she wants to do, but what everyone else is telling her to do. And there's a point halfway through her story where she's sitting on the bed in the hospital. She never wanted to be in a hospital, but everyone told her she should. She's sitting on the bed in the hospital and the nurse says to her, you have to either have a cesarean 
or take Pitocin and induce labor. You have to do one of these two. And Elena said, and I said, yes, because I was too tired to say no anymore. And when she sent me the first draft of that, I burst into tears at that point, not because I've ever had a horrific birth experience, not because anybody has ever asked me to pick between two terrible, painful, you know, scary medical procedures, but just because I know exactly how it feels to say yes when you're too tired to say no anymore. Yeah. Mm. And so that's why emotions and storytelling is so powerful because that's how we can connect and that's how we build empathy, powerful empathy with each other. And I think lack of empathy is the root of all evil. And so the more we can tell stories talking about how we feel, the more we can squash evil. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do that together. Yeah. You know, and it's so important as you're sharing this, I'm thinking about the therapists in our community. They're the ones I'm most often helping with their storytelling. And they're the ones who are often most concerned about disclosure, about sharing too many details. And you offer such brilliant medicine in helping us understand that, you know, what makes a good story isn't necessarily all those details. It's the emotions that they're conveying. It's, and, yes. And that's yes. what I would invite a client to say, you know, you need to show up emotionally to let your potential clients know that they can trust you and you can hold them mm -hmm. and that you'll see them. And something I would add to that. So this is a question I get asked a lot that people say, well, I'm a very private person or I'm an introvert and I don't want to put all of the information out there. The least important part of storytelling is the narrative and the plot. Right. And mm -hmm. all, storytelling is all about your lens on the world. So I tell stories all the time in my work and it's really powerful. Whenever I have clients or potential clients, they're all people I want to hang out with because I'm drawing my guys to me by the stories I tell. And I constantly meet people who follow, you know, who read my mailing list or read my blog or follow me on Facebook, who say, I feel like I know you so well. But actually, I'm weirdly private about putting the facts of my life online, because I'm sketched out by data protection rules and anti-terrorism laws. And I am an activist, I have friends with lots of activists, and I know that the government, like, the police could arrest me tomorrow, and they would never have to tell anyone why. And so I don't put a lot of information out there. If you were a private detective trying to find out about me, you would have a really hard time finding out the facts of my life. You would know my personality inside out. And it's because I'm constantly telling very small stories that just tell you my lens on the world. So let me tell you a quick story that I usually start my workshops and talks with this story. So a couple of months ago, I woke up and I went into the bathroom to brush my teeth. And as I switched on the light and caught sight of myself in the mirror, my stomach dropped and I felt that heavy thud of disappointment and horror. So I am a 40-year-old woman, which means that about five years ago, my body started just off-roading and started growing moles where I never had moles before and hairs where I never had hairs before. One of my toes now points in a completely different direction from the other nine toes. But this thing happened that I wasn't expecting to happen for quite a few more years where I had a row of dark blue varicose veins along my chin, along my jawline. And... And like, you know, I understand that everybody is beautiful, however they look, but I just, it was a shock. Like it was a new thing. And I was like, oh man, I thought when I was going to get these, they would be like on my butt or somewhere that people couldn't see. <laughs> and I had a workshop to run a couple of days later. And I was like, oh, you know, I don't need to feel super weird and unconfident about myself. And then I thought, you know what? We all know that we're only as attractive and as confident as we feel and that it has nothing to do with how we look. This is not somewhere where I actually see it unless I'm looking in the mirror. I'm just going to pretend it isn't there. And I made my peace with it. And as I did, 
I reached over and grabbed my toothbrush with my left hand and I saw on the back of my hand the names of two people I had to email that day where the night before in bed I'd grabbed my blue pen, written them on my hand (laughs) and then had clearly smeared it on my face. (laughs) And so telling you that story as well as proving what a classy broad I am... (laughs) That tells you a lot about me, that story. You know, that tells you that I am aging somewhat gracefully. That tells you that I feel like some, you know, that I feel the thing that so many of us feel, where when we have a physical defection, we take it as a personal failing. You know, it shows you that I'm able to make peace with things. And there's vulnerability in there, but it doesn't make me any less of a good storytelling coach or a networking coach or a speaker or a workshop facilitator. And so that's a super low stakes, vulnerable thing. And again, I'm not telling you anything really personal about my life. Like you don't know anything about my family or about my day to day or where I live. No, the Um, only thing we know is how old you are. Right. That you're afraid of getting varicose veins on your chin and that you write things down on your hand before you go to sleep. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's another thing. You know that I'm the kind of scrappy person. You do brush your teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah, it shows you that I'm the kind of scrappy person who has to write things down. And it shows you that I'm the kind of scrappy person that forgot I wrote things down. You know, that that didn't occurred to me. And all of my stories, if you look at my blog on yesyesmarsha.com, they're all tiny moments. You know, it's when I bought some takeout from this guy and then I went back the next day and I thanked him. Or I got locked out of my Airbnb with no shoes on and I managed to find a construction person on the street who helped me get back in. Those it's these tiny, tiny moments make moments. the best stories. I know one of my yeah. one of my favorite pieces that I've written is about getting stung by a bee on my finger. Mm. You know, it's those small moments they don't have to be huge stories and i think you know people relate to them better you can tell a story about when you dangled from a helicopter and ran away from the kgb and jumped over the pit of bears and it's very exciting but people can't relate i get that all the time when i work with people who want to work on the story of why they do what they do to be able to put it on their website or in their blogs and their newsletters and they say oh but why would anyone want to listen to my story like it's not very exciting and i say but actually people can you know if you say well i had this near-death experience where I tumbled 50 feet off a cliff, but then I survived. It's engaging, but people aren't going to be like, oh, I see myself in you because most of us haven't had that experience. Take us there. Why do you do what you do? For those exact reasons, because everybody thinks that everybody else has their ish together and we don't. (laughs) And if you tell stories. So this is your version of changing the world. That's my version of changing the world. Yeah. One story Mm -hmm. at a time. And I think storytelling can be really powerful for impact. You know, if you are pushing a cause, but for me, really, that's the essential thing is I just want people to like slide little bits of vulnerability in so that they can all remember because it's so powerful, that feeling that everyone else has it together. You know, I had it just the other morning I was meditating and, and I like was really busy. So I was like, okay, I'll meditate for five minutes. And then I was like, oh, you know, I kind of imagine that all these heroes of mine meditate for four hours every morning. And then I remembered (laughs) that Marie Forleo says she just does 10 minutes a morning. And I was like, oh, well, that's okay. I can do 10 minutes. But then I was just thinking about her and, and realizing that even though I know humans so well, I still have this idea that someone like her, who I don't know very well and who I greatly admire, is firing on all cylinders. And it's just nobody ever is. You know, I think of it like a graphic equalizer on an old school hi-fi system on an old school radio where it's like you can't have all of them at the top all of the time because it's just physically impossible. Everything we do, there's sacrifices. You know, if you have a family, you have less time to sit around in cafes, which is one of my favorite things to do. If you sit around in cafes, you have, you know, you're not whatever, working on your art or you know what I mean? Whatever it is, like 
just making your life by its nature. You You're your making energy. your choices about where you put your energy. And it doesn't mean that we're all miserable. It just means that we're choosing where we are. And I so often, I have a friend where we hadn't spoken for a few months and it was like a time in my life where I was feeling like, oh, everybody who has a kid has achieved and I failed if I haven't. And she like has this wonderful partner, has these two children who are so adorable that if I'm having a bad day, I just sit and look at pictures of them on Facebook. And I'd really been feeling like, wow, she has it nailed. You know, she lives in this lovely house. She's totally like acing life. And we met up for the first time in ages. And it turned out she had been feeling exactly the same way about me. She was there being like, I'm stuck in with the kids all the time. Marsha's always doing this traveling and doing all these interesting things. And our internal monologues about each other were the same word for word. And it's so, it's And your lives were so completely not the same. And our lives were the completely opposite that we were feeling that the other one was nailing it and we were the ones who were failing. And so if we could eliminate that, just think about how much more we could get done. You know, it's like with body image stuff. I spent all of my 20s worrying about the size of my ass. Mm. I could have been changing the world. <laughs> but and now, now you're I changing am. the world by telling everybody about how you worried about the size of your yeah, ass. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I still get caught up, you know, oh, I'm not hitting it out of the park in this way. Even just this morning, I just posted a thing on Facebook. I have to do a proposal for someone. And one of the things that I promised in the proposal is something I've never done before about mm. writing a survey for them and I was like I don't know how to do this how am I going to do this thing and then I thought Marsha anything you do will be literally better than not doing anything (laughs) like any survey you come up with will be better than no survey Mm. but it's just this expectation that everybody else is hitting it out of the park in every single aspect of their life so I have to be too you know it makes me think of that like imposter syndrome that so Mm. many of us carry around with us Totally. Yeah. 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 And, and I know, think, it, yeah, and imposter syndrome is based on this ideal of other people, right? Yeah. Right. It's the stories we tell ourselves about how we're not good enough or how other people are better than us. Mm. Mm. And totally. one of the basic things I learned in healing training was, you know, feeling like, okay, I'm not ready to have a first session with somebody. And mm. my teacher's advice was all you need to be is one step ahead of them. Yes. And know totally. that that allows you to hold just that much more space totally. that you can help them grow. And that totally. applies to so much of our coaching work, therapy work, it's mm-hmm. across the board. Mm. I mean, they hired you to do a survey because they don't know what to do. Right. You're, you're many <laughs> steps ahead of them in the fact that, you know, you are up last night worrying about it. They didn't do that. Yeah. Right. You've already totally. put more energy in. Totally. <laughs> totally. And I always think that whenever I land like a really big deal client, I always think like they're going to be better off if they work with me than if they don't work with me. And I can always give them a refund. If they hate it, I can give them a refund and they'll be better off. And nobody has ever asked me for a refund. But it's, but it's always there in the back thing. of your head. It's, it's one of those like, stories that you tell yeah. yourself. But I'm just like, I can give them a refund and then they'll definitely be better off than they would be, you know, without yeah. me. And that's kind of how I get through. And that's even another thing. There's a business coach I love called Jenny She, who I've worked with and we're friends, but she's like, was a big business hero for me for years before I ever spoke to her. And when I first started, every single coaching client I had, as soon as the money went into my account, I would feel like I wanted to vomit because I'd be like, oh my God, what if this is the one I can't help? And then Jenny posted in a group that we're both in saying, I've been doing this for, I don't know how many years she's been doing it for. She's wildly successful. She was said, you know, I've been doing this for X years. I just want you to know every single time I land in new client. I always think this is the one I'm not going to be able to help. And so I thought, oh, well, if she's thinking that, you know, because you think, oh, does that mean I'm actually shouldn't be doing this? Does that mean I'm a failure? And you think, oh, well, if she 
always thinking that. It's the same when I worked on radio. There was a point when I first started, I was working at this indie radio station that was, it wasn't huge, but it was cult. So the people who loved it, loved it. And it meant that when you came in as a new DJ, and I was doing a lot of daytime cover, so I was covering a very beloved DJ. Oh, they were awful to me. They also assume you have an army of 15 producers reading through any of the texts. And don't realize it's just you and a computer screen just being like, okay, well, here's another awful thing a stranger said about me. And I was so upset about it. And I thought, maybe this means I'm not thick-skinned enough. I can't do this. And then I heard a story about one of the DJs on my station who was like one of the most famous DJs in the country at that time. His producer told me how once she'd walked into the room and he threw a CD across the room and burst into tears. And I was like, oh, well, if he feels bad about this, then this doesn't mean it's a sign. I think so often when we feel bad about something, we're like, this is a sign that I'm not good at this. Whereas actually, it's just a sign that you are a human being. (laughs) And everybody around you isn't actually wearing a full suit of armor that they carry with such grace as if it's nothing at all to have 50 pounds of steel to keep them from ever feeling hurt or pain. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, there's something that happens, you know, when we open up those vulnerabilities. Like, I know I do a lot of work with couples and I hear a lot of different stories, some beautiful, amazing stories of repair, some really engaging and emotional stories that need to be held, Mm. some stories of a lot of hurt and a lot of pain and grief. And then I come back to my family And I'm often holding those stories in different ways. And I, you know, I do my pieces to let go of them, but I notice where those stories are still within me and where they intersect with my life. And then what I need to ask for from the people in my life, like with my husband, when I need an extra reassurance, because I heard something really hard and I need to make sure of him, you know? And so those are intersection points, I think, between all the stories that we carry around and the way we live our lives and how those stories and those vulnerabilities can help us connect. Because when I ask my husband for those moments, when I'm aware of them and I ask him for them, we have magical moments. Mm. But when I kind of guard myself against them and I (laughs) pretend like they're not happening we don't have such magical moments. We have disconnected moments, you know? So a lot of this is about, I think, knowing how we guard ourselves and how we embrace and allow for that vulnerability because that vulnerability brings us into connection. Mm, Yeah. And I think there's also, there's, I think people are often afraid of doing what Brene Brown, I've just finished five years after everyone else reading Daring Greatly. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, But she talks about fire hosing vulnerability, Mm -hmm. which is when you meet someone and you just say, my life is falling apart and I had a big fight with my boyfriend and I'm about to lose my job and all of this. And if you've just met someone, it's like, whoa. And the action. I call that barfing. Barfing. (laughs) And so I think people are terribly afraid of doing that. And it does happen. And I think, you know, there's a certain extent to which you have to kind of try and figure out what's the balance or just do it with people where you've built a certain sense of trust with them. I mean, one of the things that I love about doing the storytelling coaching is that when I meet people, I tend to ask them really personal questions because those are just the ones that are more interesting. And so what used to happen is I would meet someone and I would ask them a ton of super personal questions. And then they would tell me all this very personal. I think, you know, I obviously give off some vibe of being a safe 
place to tell things to. And so they would tell me all this super personal information. I bet you two have both had this experience too. But what happened before I had 10 years of therapy around boundary is that I used to have that human reciprocity feeling. And so I think, oh, now I need to tell you all this very personal information about me. Mm. And I would. And then we would find this situation where they would be going, oh my God, me and Marsha just made this really profound connection. And I would be thinking, I did this with the cab driver on the way here. Like I do this with everyone. And what I love about the story coaching is I get to sit down and I get to spend like two and a half hours or, you know, an hour and a half asking someone all these really personal questions and they don't expect me to give any personal information back and they Mm. understand the professional boundaries of it. But so I feel like once you earn that trust, but once you can just share these kind of tiny little bits of vulnerability, and I think that's how you start is just like little experiments of like tiny bits here and there. It's really powerful. And, you know, I'm British and we're very much, even though my family were Russian, the kind of my mum had grown up in England and, and my grandpa who brought me up also was very British. And we're super taught not to put our feelings everywhere. One of my best friends used to call it my secret crying because I would never cry in front of anyone because it's like, oh, stiff up a lip, pull yourself together. And so I really had to learn to let those little bits of vulnerability out. But every single time I do, there's that moment, you know, one or two times out of 10, it won't go well for you. And there's that moment where you're like, what if I went too far? But eight times out of 10 or nine times out of 10, it's really powerful. So for example, another thing I spoke last year, actually, and will this year again, at Jeff Goins's tribe conference. And he brought me on, he called me the awkwardness controller, because it's all kind of raging introvert writers. And so he brought me out for 10 minutes every day to do a little bit, you know, with the networking stuff I teach just to kind of get them talking to each other. And actually, I just talked about storytelling. And I talked about how that's the way that they can make those connections. But one of the things I said was one of the things that I'd only kind of pretty recently realized about my And I was really nervous to say it to a room full of people. But I said, you know, you may find this thing that I find, which is when I meet a room full of people for the first time, and I was like, bear in mind, my business is called Yes, Yes, Marsha. I have the word yes tattooed on my finger. When I meet people for the first time, whether it's 10 people in a workshop or a room full of people at a conference, my usual emotional response to all of them is, I hate you. I hate all of you. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. And it's usually, you're so smug. You think you're the best, don't you? And it's what I think is a very British response, which is, if I hate you first, it doesn't matter if you judge me and find me not good enough because I already hate you. And what I I found... I'm secretly British sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And I've just developed a major girl crush. (laughs) And what I found is that Actually, the way you combat that is you ask them to tell you stories. You know, when I really noticed that, I wrote a blog about this because when I, I put it on the, the secret webpage, because when I really noticed this was at a storytelling workshop I went to at WDS that my friend Sarah Hunt ran. And I turned up and I was a bit late and I sat down and I just hated all of them. And there was this couple there and they go traveling with their kids. They like travel around the world with their kids. And I was like, you and your perfect family traveling around the world. Aren't you great? And then we had to tell stories. And so I started, you know, how did you feel? How did you feel? How did you feel? And the vulnerabilities come out. And it's like it softens everything because you stop seeing them as this cardboard cutout of a perfect person who's better than you and who's making you look bad. And you start to see them as a human. You know, I always feel like it's like 
looking at someone as like a cardboard cutout, like in a movie theater, and then you're peeling it back and there's the Grand Canyon behind them. You know, there's so much depth and you feel that empathy for them. And that's how you stop hating them. So when I told that to a room full of people at Tribe Conference, I was really like, this might not go well for me. <laughs> you know, I might tell this and have 500 people just staring at me being like, who the F are you, you weird, evil weirdo? You and hate actually, us. They all start to yeah, cry. you hate it. Exactly. But actually what happened was there was that very particular laugh that you know so well that's like a laugh of painful recognition. Mm. That's like, a, you know, people hold off and then everybody really laughed because they were secretly all being like, oh my gosh, that's me. <laughs> you know, that's something, Marisa, that reminds me of something you say a lot about how the universal lies in the really specific details. Mm. Yes. 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 And I think so much of this conversation, like we found ourselves in Marsha's stories. Oh, yeah. And knowing, you know, we're separated by national border and many daily life experiences and knowing that the more we know about Marsha brushing her teeth and what she saw in the mirror that day, <laughs> it explains everything I saw in the mirror, you know, in the selfie I tried to take earlier. I'm like, oh, dear God, not with that pimple on my right cheek. Thank you very much. We'll just press delete. <laughs> Yes. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've really noticed it around is dating people that I like. I'm so great at meeting people. I really like talking to people. But going on first dates, I usually want to vomit in advance of them. And they're usually <laughs> fine. You know, they're either generally I have a pretty good hit rate of like epically great first dates. But in advance, it's this thing where I'm like, oh, I'm not physically perfect. I'm not physically perfect. And then I turn up and realize that the man or the lady that I'm on a date with also is not physically perfect <laughs> and I don't mind and they won't mind that I'm not because they're not either because again nobody is firing on all cylinders right. and um it's just these stories that we tell ourselves about other people can I tell you guys one more story which yes is another story so now I've started doing corporate work I'm like I don't think I can start with the story about how I grow moles and hairs in unexpected places to a room full of <laughs> corporate people um, even though I think that they would love it because they're humans I feel like that's something that I might need to get to know them before I get to that story. And then something else happened in my life where I was like, oh, this is a good one. So I am lifelong killer of plants. I've always really admired people. Like my stepson's mum, you walk into her house and there's just plants everywhere and it's so beautiful and it feels so calming and I love nature. I am not able to do that. But a couple of years ago, she bought me a cactus, very hard to kill, and didn't kill it. So I graduated and I bought a couple of jade plants and I kept almost killing these, but they're not quite. And so... I have this plant, which I'm holding in my hand right now, which is a little jade plant. And it's in a tiny little glass plant pot, but it's bursting out of it. But I bought it in this hipster coffee shop about two or three months ago. And I was like, okay, I can keep this one alive. But I knew immediately I had to repot it. Like if you could see it, it's bursting out. And so it sat on my kitchen table. And every day I would sit at this plant and I'd look at it and I'd think, oh my gosh, I need to repot it. And I watered it. And one of the ways that I kill plants is I overwater them. So I'm trying not to overwater it, but I go to water it again. And there's still water from the last time in it. Oh my God, I'm going <laughs> to kill it. And by this point, the snow has come down in Toronto. And I'm like, I should have repotted it before the snow came because now I can't get to the earth. And what am I going to do? And I'm sitting there every single morning feeling so much shame about this plant and like what I can't even keep a plant alive what kind of human being am I and then literally last week I thought I'm gonna see how easy this is to repot and so I lifted up like it's really packed into this thing but I lifted up some of the leaves and underneath the leaves there was glue and I'm like what and then I looked further and there was a plastic rod like rammed through the plant and I'm like what the whole plant's plastic <laughs> 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 
I wish I could show you it right now because it's pretty, like it's convincing. But once you look, you're like, oh yeah, there's even like little bits that are like very <laughs> obviously plastic. Even like two days ago, I realized not even the earth is real earth. It's just plastic made to look like earth. My heart is bursting. <laughs> and I've been feeling shame for three months. <laughs> Over a plastic plant. It's actually the best thing that's ever happened to me. That's why it's in my office now, because this is where plants come to die, but not this one. (laughs) That reminds me of a story about my grandmother, who always was like obsessive about watering this plant in her kitchen. And she was in the hospital and she wasn't doing well. And we were like, we have to go water the plant. We have to go water the plant. And that's when we found out it was also a plastic plant. (laughs) She didn't know. Amazing. (laughs) I just love it. I just love it. I mean, it, it, due to an overabundance of love and attention, mm-hmm. we often don't see what's right in front of us. We don't. Yeah. 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 Totally. Oh, and again, thank another. You for sharing another that with us. You're welcome. And again, another example of like a tiny little story, right? Like, yes. that's not. That shows you that I'm bad at keeping plants alive. But again, that doesn't make me a bad storytelling coach. Um, no, and, it makes and, you an and amazing it's a pretty good example. Coach for giving us this gift of showing us how small these stories can be and how amazing and connection and the bigness of the feelings that they can evoke in us. Totally. And also I just think, you know, the plant ones are pretty good example because most people I tell that story to go, I kill plants too. (laughs) (laughs) Which may tell you about the kind of people that I hang out with. But I feel like those things were again, you know, it's just like that I don't have it all together Tuesday thread. Like nobody is firing on all cylinders. Everybody does this stuff. We just assume no one else does. Right. Mm. Because they're not the stories we feel comfortable sharing. Mm, Exactly. So hopefully this will encourage people. To share more. So I know you've included your website a few times, but just tell it to us again. It's... Yes. So, yes, well, I'm going to tell you the, the special yeah. secret web page okay. that I've made for you guys, which is yes, yes, Marsha, M A R S H A dot com forward slash P O B S. And there I'll have links to some of the stuff we've talked about today. We kind of touched on, but didn't quite get into the science of storytelling, but I'll put a link to a really short blog I wrote there and, and the science of why using emotions in storytelling builds trust, loyalty, connection. It makes your brain flood with dopamine. It's a memory aid. It makes your brain flood with oxytocin, which is trust and generosity. Can we get you back on to talk about that? Oh my gosh, I would love to. Okay. Yes, please. (laughs) In the meantime, we'll have the teaser of that link in the notes. Marsha, it's been such a pleasure. (laughs) It's been so fun. It has. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, one of the things I loved about talking with Marsha today about storytelling is that we dove so deeply into talking about feelings and recognizing feelings and using those feelings as a way to illustrate story. Today's sponsor is Medify, which is a self-awareness app created by therapists, and it's available for free on both Android and Apple devices. What I love about Medify is that it totally supports this developing awareness to see how your feelings are really informing you. It gives you an opportunity to drop into noticing those feelings and finding a way to record them. Medify supports mindfulness, emotional intelligence, and body awareness. I especially love the body awareness stuff. Paying attention to your body, to all of these different sensations and feelings with the Medify app will help you to reestablish and strengthen the emotional connection between your mind and body. It will increase your awareness of how you're showing up from moment to moment. You could totally use that in storytelling. 
knowing how you're showing up, having that recording, that record of how you were experiencing your feelings, where in your body you were experiencing them, what they felt like, that makes for good stories. <laughs> Metify will also help you move out of reacting to responding. It will help you improve your relationships, your productivity, your creativity, your emotional intelligence, and your thinking. So we really encourage you to go ahead and download the free Metify app. We think you're going to enjoy it as much as we do. We want to remind you that if you want to dive deeper into the practice of being seen, we have a retreat coming up this August in New York's gorgeous Catskill Mountains. Learn more at practiceofbeingseen.com events. And I just want to hop in and add one more comment to that. Just that so much of what we're going to be offering at our retreat is a space to really sense, birth, and hold all of these different aspects of the visions and the dreams that you're looking to bring into the world. And so on that note, for more great content, check out practiceofbeingseen.com and spread the word by subscribing, rating, and reviewing our podcast. Music written and performed by Christopher Ferris and produced at Kidneystone Studio.